Welcome to Franchised with Shane Douglas. I'm a jet plane flying, limousine riding, golden hair son of a bitch. But if you catch me in the club with my crocodiles on, will your girl gon' give me a kiss? If I throw a bone, a thousand dollar cologne, I smell great, give me a sniff. But if your lady stop pouncing on the space mountain, cause the ride ain't gonna be of a risk. When it's cold in the morning, and you don't know what you're gonna do, say, you just got a new girl, just to hear. I'm always styling, still profiling, a cocky ass son of a bitch. But even my chose list tried to give me the biz, but a sequence made me itch. Charlize Theron won't leave me alone, she mad she not my chick. But to be the man, you gotta beat the man, ain't no chance in that shit. When it's cold in the morning, yeah, you don't know what you're gonna do, say. Just got a new girl, just to Some sin. Dusty Rhodes got the bell and I'm bad for your health Cause tonight we'll be partying That's right Well Bobby the Brain, he's holding my chain Making sure I don't lose my grip When nature's in town, well I came to get down Even rappers talking about my drip it's cold Right out of that awesome song by Matt Mullins and the Bringdowns. That is our exclusive for this week, the Nature Boy track. It's entitled Nature Boy. It's coming on the uh, partly pandemonium, partly love album that is coming out in December from Matt Mullins and the Bringdowns. And we got to break it here on Franchised with Shane Douglas. And I just happen to be sitting here with the man himself, Mr. Franchise. How are you today, sir? Doing great, man. Just, you know, laughing at the song and, uh, you know, great stuff, right? I, the only question I have is when, when's, uh, you know, when's Matt Mullins and the Brain Downs going to do one on the franchise? Well, you know, I heard that that may be in the works right now, so we could hear that in the next few weeks. Ah, see, finally it. All the big wrestling icons getting their uh, wrestling songs, right? I was going to say, so I'll have one, and 
Taz doesn't, uh, Raven doesn't, Tommy Dreamer doesn't, but the franchise will. Yes, that is that is exactly what I was saying. <laughs> All right, so today's show is going to be about Ric Flair. Are you ready for that? I know you've talked about Ric Flair, I don't know, forever. Who? <laughs> exactly. Who? <laughs> Who? Uh, yeah, we're talking yeah. about Ric Flair today, but before we get there, we want to talk about last week's episode. Uh, all kinds of positive feedback from that. Good. Interrogate good. the franchise went over pretty well. Well, you know, it's funny because I, uh, you know, I would figure that it would have because every place I go, you know, every weekend out, you know, every appearance, convention, show, event, the fans always amazed me by coming up and asking me some question every weekend at least one question that i've never been asked or don't remember if i was asked you know so doesn't surprise me that a show like that would uh would you know get the feedback like that yeah it was a great show and we learned a whole lot and we're planning on learning a whole lot this week as well and i got an announcement about another new show that we've got coming out that you don't even know what the topic is for next week and i'm not going to tell you till the end of the show <laughs> but i will tell you this as always you're, you're going to be excited good good look forward to it so uh let's let's just kick right into this it's, it's amazing we're able to put an entire show together about a feud that only had one match yeah right the thing about the franchise and i think ecw was that it was intended and did blur the line between you know sports entertainment professional wrestling reality and in doing that most of that stuff emanated from the, the very first long promo i had in ecw when i think it was a five minute segment set aside and my music's playing and i said to paul Heyman, what do you want me to say and he said whatever you want you know so a i had to fill up five minutes but b I had the opportunity to go out and say things. I wasn't going to go out there and, you know, tell a la la rainbow lollipop story. I was going to go out and talk about the things that I'd experienced in wrestling. You know, so for better or for worse, the things that I've said about Rick, you know, I don't run from them. I also, you know, don't wish bad on them. You know, the stuff to me was so long ago that I, I, I get a chuckle whenever I hear, you know, Flair taking a shot today. It's like, geez, they're still... You're still, I'm still renting space in your head all these years later because, you know, I, the only time I think of Ric Flair is whenever I see him, whenever I see him on a show or when we do something like this. The rest of my 24 hours a day, Ric Flair never pops into my head. Well, he's going to pop in your head today because we are getting started from the very beginning. And we're going to start at, at 1972 because Ric Flair made his professional wrestling debut in 1972. You were born in 1964, so you were about eight years old at that time. Now, as a wrestling fan, what is your first exposure to Ric Flair? Wrestling magazines. You know, in, in Pittsburgh, we didn't get the NWA. We had the WWF show on Studio Wrestling. And then, of course, when cable came in in 1976, I believe, we were able to get the WOR show. But it was it was probably into the 80s, I would say, before I was actually able to see an NWA show. You know, so it wasn't like today you could get online and you know go to YouTube or whatever and pull up a video. Back then, the only way we had to find information like that was in the wrestling magazines you know and, and, and whenever i was that age you know reading wrestling magazines on a month-to-month basis flair wasn't yet the guy you know harley race was the guy so you know i was reading about all these names harley race and ricky steamboat and oliver humperdinck and and, and rick flair and then you know finally when the cable would come in later uh, into pittsburgh 
the NWA came and did a show at Pittsburgh Three River Stadium, a show I did not attend for whatever reason. Three River Stadium held part about 60,000 people, and you know they had few less than that, <laughs> uh, from what I understand. But that was, you know, that that my earliest recollection of knowing Ric Flair was through the. Uh, through the wrestling magazines. So what magazines were you reading at that time? Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Uh, there was another one that had like a, a less busy front, and I can't, can't remember the name of it. I'm trying to envision it in my eggs. i got a photographic memory, but the, the, the front usually had a, a single picture, maybe like a line or two. But, you know, the, all those magazines were talking about the AWA, the NWA, WWF, and it was a pretty good way for a kid to catch up on what was going on in those other places. So now when you finally, uh, in the 80s, started seeing uh, Ric Flair actually wrestle, would you say you were a fan? Big time. Huge. He, to me, personified what uh, what professional wrestling should look like. Rick was a cut above everybody else. Uh, I loved Harley. Harley was a technician. But Flair pulled all the elements together. You know, to me, Harley Race always played a truck driver or a steel worker in the ring. But Ric Flair looked the part. Charismatic, larger than life, a technician in the ring, phenomenal talker and heel. To me, that's what professional wrestling should look like. What matches stand out in your head as as the matches that really made Ric Flair for you? Uh, There were two for me. The first was his feud with Dusty Rhodes, and the second was his feud with Ricky Steamboat. Uh, Watching those matches, you know, I would watch them over and over again. I, you know, when I had the rare opportunity back then you know when a friend of mine had a vcr and you know we'd get a match in the celly between rick and, and steamboat we rick flair and rick steamboat and we would watch that over and over and over and over and over i mean literally till we wear the tape out you know they, it was just uh, to at that time you know early teens been an athlete all my life and watching it and just was spellbound you know by watching him in comparison, as much as I loved Bruno growing up, you know, Bruno was more of a brawler style, you know, a big, strong guy. But suddenly with Flair, you're seeing these, you know, just progressions of moves, spots, you know, that, that just looked phenomenal. So we were talking about you were eight years old when Ric Flair debuted. I was eight years old in 1990. And my first exposure to Ric Flair was his feud with Sting and the black, you know, with the Black Scorpion and all that stuff. You were there for mm-hmm. that, weren't you? I was, yes. How was it, like, uh, you know, working with Flair at that time? Well, I, I didn't work with him at that time, but you know, well, I mean, working him, in the same uh, company. Yeah, for me as a kid, uh, you know, Dominic uh, Danucci taught me and Mick and Cody and Brian Hildebrand, Mark Curtis taught all of us to keep our mouth shut and our eyes and ears open. And so I would watch all of the guys in the dressing room, Flair included. How did they unpack their bag? How did they get dressed? What did they put on first? How did they prepare for their matches? You know, it it just was like each night just taking this in. And then as somebody who just absolutely loved professional wrestling, to be able to go and sit and watch the curtain or the rare occasion when there was a monitor, to be able to sit there and watch this happen, uh, on a night-to-night basis, it was like going to the Pittsburgh Civic Arena every single night. You know, back when I was a kid, my dad would take me to Pittsburgh Civic Arena once a month, and now I was able to do it once a night, sometimes twice a day on the weekends when we had matinee shows. You know, so I was getting an opportunity to watch some pretty goddamn great wrestling by some pretty phenomenal wrestlers and getting paid to do it. 
not much, but getting paid to do it. That that had to have been incredible. Uh, so you didn't you didn't really speak to Flair when you were in the company with him at this time? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, you know, so you understand how the dressing room was set up. Uh, you know, the the guys in the back were always you know sort of cutting up. I, I mean, it wasn't like I was going and cutting into a conversation or whatever. But you know, you, these guys were there to ask questions and you know if you had had a thought about something. You know, but Rick had a you know typically the the way the NWA was then. You know, Flair and Dusty and a handful of guys had their own dressing rooms. But you'd see them in catering and floating around and stuff. You know, you were able to interact, but it was just sort of it was very much a hierarchy. You know, they, they, you understood you were down here and they were up there. Did you feel like he respected you at that time? I don't think he knew who I was at the time. I don't think Rick paid attention to anybody else in the dressing room. I don't mean like he was standoffish or, or uh, ignorant to anybody. I, I just think Rick, you know, as we all know, Rick Flair loves Rick Flair. I think he, you know, was just, you know, floating around. The world was his bubble. Well, as a fan first and then a professional wrestler yourself, how do you feel like Ric Flair influenced your career or character when you first broke into the business before you actually, like, knew him? There there were a handful of guys that, you know, uh, the way we wrestled then, because it's obviously very different today, was it was out and it was like a live action video game, you know. So if somebody goes to leg dive you, you can let them have it, you can counter it, or you can move away from it. There's only so many options. You know, and if you give it to them, then you're going to have to go down and then figure out a way to work back up. You know, so for me, it was, uh, there were a handful of guys in my head that when I would get lost, which was almost nightly, I would think in my head, you know, what would Bruno do right now? What would Dominic do right now? What would Flair do right now? What would Steamboat or Harley those were the guys that were like embedded in my head because I'd watched those tapes so often of those guys that I could get myself through those blank spots, you know. So all of those guys, you know, played an integral role in in my formative years in the wrestling business. So when did you officially meet Ric Flair? Where he like he knows who you are at this point? Like like this is Shane Douglas. Shane Douglas. This is Ric Flair. How did that initial meeting go? And when was that? Uh, it was probably around the time that uh, Johnny and I were doing the dudes. Rick was at one point, not for very long, was the head of the quote-unquote booking committee, the worst way to run a wrestling company in my experience. You know, everybody in the booking committee had their own little clique that, that they were worried about. They didn't give a shit about anything else on that except their little piece of it. There was the, the earliest time I could remember, and I, I don't mean like it never spoke to the guy, but the earliest I can remember going and having like a business interaction with him was after Eddie Gilbert had informed me and Johnny. Johnny and I made our debut on uh, Music City Showdown in Nashville uh, the night that Steamboat, uh, I mean, uh, Terry Funk put Ric Flair to the table with a power driver. We wrestled the uh, Samoan SWAT team with Paul Heyman, oddly enough, as their manager. You know, went pretty well. We debuted as Johnny and Shane. It was either the next generation or the new generation. I can't remember which. And the next morning, we got in the van, the hotel van, to go to the airport. Eddie Gilbert was sitting in the front passenger seat, and he said, he turned around. Eddie always had a real wry sense of humor, so he never quite knew when he was ribbing or not. And he turned around in his seat, in his seat, and he said, "Well, have you guys heard your new name yet?" And I said, "You know, I'm thinking, well, we debuted last night, and 
you know, you can't really change a name once it's out there, at least I thought. And uh, I said, okay, Eddie, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not buying it, but I'll bite. You know, okay, what's the punchline? And he said, uh, they're going to start calling you the dynamic dudes. And I started laughing. I believe Johnny was laughing. Eddie kept looking at us with a deadpan face, deadpan serious face. You know, I had known Eddie for quite some time at that point. And I stopped and I realized that he wasn't laughing, wasn't smiling or grinning. So I said, okay, uh, what, what fucking gives? And he said, uh, you know, it's here. He said, uh, Jim Hurd came up with that. And he explained why. He said that it was based off of, uh, they had allegedly, this is what I was told, they had commissioned, they being CNN, uh, Turner, whoever the company was, that they had commissioned, like, what were the hot words in California that, that summer, with the thought being that everything that starts in California works its way eastward. And the two top words on the list were dynamic and dude. Hey, dude. And hey, that's dynamic. Jim Hurd, in his infinite Pizza Hut wisdom, decided to take the two top words off that list and put them together. When I realized, we realized that Eddie was serious, that they were going to change our name to the dynamic dudes. We were in Bristol, Tennessee that night. And Rick was the head of the booking committee. And in, in the Bristol building, there's a you know, the dressing area. And then there was like a staircase that went up to like a loft area. That's where Rick was dressing. So I went up to talk to him and he was laying on the couch. Now understand he's my boss at this point. So I went up to him and I said, Hey Rick, can I talk to you about something? And, you know, I told him what Eddie had told us and I lodged my complaint. I said, you know, it's dumb. It's a stupid idea. We've already debuted uh, last night. I, I believe it was the night before, you know, I said, you know, plus the name itself is cornball. Well, he started, he started giving me all the reasons why he couldn't do anything. He said, my hands are tied. You know, now, I mean, like, let's step back for a second. This is Ric Flair, the nature boy, the biggest star in the NWA, multiple-time world champion, and now the head of the booking committee. If Ric Flair would have called the office and said, hey, this is a moronic idea, you're going to anchor these kids with this, I'm pretty sure... He could have gotten that name changed or, or, or kept what we were before we debuted as the dynamic dudes. He just didn't want to do it. You know, so his answer to that was, my hands are tied. Well, you know, uh, that was my first thing. I said, I'm sure there were dressing room discussions or, hey, how you doing, what, that kind of thing. You know, from my earliest recollections of meeting Rick, you know, understand I'm a young wrestler getting into the business and walking into the same dressing room with Ric Flair. He knew, even though there wasn't much interaction between us, he knew that I was a big fan of his, a mark of his. You know, from the earliest days meeting him, told him, you know, how much I respected his work and, you know, looked up to him, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. So, you know, in those early years, you know, there was always a good rapport between the two of us. In fact, he would go to the ring, you know, Rick would always give his Rolex to somebody to hold. Uh, he would never just put it in his bag and leave the dressing room. And I think maybe a gold chain or like whatever jewelry he was wearing. He would often give it to me to hold. You so know, you so were holding the Rolex? Oh, yeah, quite often. So he obviously had to trust you. Well, yeah. Like I said earlier, he, you know, he, he knew how much I looked up to him. You know, I, I, I made that much clear because, A, I knew I knew what I didn't know, that I knew there was a lot that I didn't know, and I knew that if somebody could tell me this guy could because he was such a, you know, such a, a an unbelievable performer in ring, you know, to sort of sit under the wisdom tree is what I was hoping. All right, you say a lot that we should never meet our heroes. So where was it exactly that Ric Flair lost your respect? Uh, I don't I can't, you know, 
again, because of the length of my career, I can't remember a specific year. It was probably around the time that I was starting to wrestle singles. I went to him and I said, you know, and I remember vividly prefacing it. Hey, look, I know you're busy, and if you don't have the time, I get it. No no problem. But if you ever get a chance to watch my matches and give me some feedback, I'd really appreciate it. And I said it again. You know, I said, look, but I, I, again, if you don't have the time, I get it. And he stopped, and he put his hand on my shoulder, squeezed my shoulder, and he said, it would be an honor, sir. Over the next several weeks during the matches, back in the early days of my matches, I used to, when the heel would be beating on me, I would, you know, in the turnbuckle, I'd have them Iris whip me to the opposite turnbuckle. And at that point, I would do a vault to the top turnbuckle and do a blind cross body block. Over the next several weeks after, you know, talking to him about this and him saying it would be an honor to give me you know, input. He kept giving me on a nightly basis generic feedback. You know, hey, good fire, good selling, good comeback, you know, stuff like that. Never, hey, the arm drag spot was in the wrong place or you turned the wrong way on this spot or that spot. And so after about three weeks, you know, in the back of my head, I knew what he was doing. But I was in my heart hoping that he wasn't doing it. So after, I don't know, two or three weeks, maybe a month of that, on one particular night when I came back, and I asked him, you know, hey, how was the match? And he said, uh, you know, started with the same thing. You know, good good fire, good selling, good comeback, uh, you know, you know, stuff like that. I said, well, how, about, how, was the, how about the cross body? How was that tonight? And on that particular night, I didn't do, I intentionally did not do the cross body block. And I, I, I can see, as I tell, every time I tell the story, I can see it in my head because it's tattooed there. When I asked him about the cross body block, he, he like knitted his eyebrows and his lips and he looked down at the ground like he was thinking. And I thought in my head, I was telling myself, please say you didn't see one. Please say you didn't see one. Please say you didn't see a cross body block. And after a pregnant pause, he stopped, he looked back up at me and he went, perfect. As he put his hand on my shoulder, he said, perfect, better than Steamboat. And it was at that point that like this larger than life guy, shrunk up to like a little six inch figure like he suddenly was no god to me you know he was he was a jackass and you know in our business i've had that experience quite a lot in my career where some younger wrestler will come up and ask me for input and i'm always honest i tell them like hey I, if i don't have time that night i'll tell them hey, i won't have time because my match is right before yours or right after yours whatever but if i tell a kid that i will watch their match i do and i give them feedback and i always tell them up front i don't sugarcoat stuff i'm going to tell you what i see right and i'm going to tell you what i see wrong and uh i've seen you do you it know, because of that yeah because because of that you know, I, A, I'm not a hypocrite. I've never been a hypocrite, won't ever be a hypocrite. And uh, because that incident with Rick has always impacted my career. You know, there was there was a part of me, you know, a little secret for people that may not know out there. I'm one stubborn son of a bitch. <laughs> and, I don't think that's a know, secret. Yeah. <laughs> in some ways, that's, that's worked against me in my career. Uh, in other ways, it's been immensely helpful in my career. And this was one of the times it was immensely helpful because I thought, well, if you won't fucking show me, then I'll I'll learn it my my own way. You know, that's what, what we we had to do. Now I don't mean to, to say that I didn't have help along the way. Harley Race was always very open about giving advice. Ricky Steamboat, years before we were ever partners, was always phenomenal at giving advice. As were a lot of the guys in the ring. You know, I, you know, I got the opportunity to work with. You know, the Dick Slaters and Dick Murdochs and Eddie Gilberts and, and uh, Buddy Roberts of the, of the world, Pez Watleys. And those guys would tell you on a night-to-night basis, they would come back. They would say, 
you know, what I did right, what you did wrong. If you fuck something up, they would point that out. Uh, I vividly remember Pez Watley. <clears throat> I credit Pez with teaching me how to throw punches. He came back, I don't know, a week of working with him after a week or so. And he came back and he said, God damn, you're killing me with those punches out there. I Dominic had never taught us to throw punches. Dominic taught us to wrestle. If you remember, like, if you ever watched Dominic's matches when he was younger, Dominic would throw, like, European flippers. Once in a while, he would throw, he would do this thing with his hands where he'd throw, like, a wide, like, a slapping-type punch. But he never threw punches. Uh, Pez took me into the shower, tape on his wrist. As we were walking back to the shower area, he pulled, you know, in the dressing room, we always had the line up that night. He pulled that off the, off the wall, walked into the shower, pulled a piece of tape off his wrist, and taped that piece, the, the, that night line up to the wall and said, punch it on a brick wall, you know, the shower brick wall. So I can't, I'll, I'll break my hand. He reached up and he punched that paper and you could hear the paper snap. Perfect. It was like watching a magic trick. Those were the types of things, the, the types of feedback that I wanted. As a young performer, I wanted to learn that way and I needed to learn that way. And, you know, so when Rick didn't reciprocate, when Rick just punched you out, you know, like, hey, kids, you're doing great, even though you didn't watch your match. And that was the other part of it. You know, like, you'd come back and you'd ask Johnny or, or Zank or uh, Pillman, hey, did Rick watch the match? And they just, like, sort of chuckle. You know, no, he didn't give a shit. And, you know, to me, that was one of the places where I think Rick really could have, you know, there's a lot of guys in our business that, that don't respect them. There's a lot that do. I mean, I think we all respect him as the performer he was, but as a man and, and, you know, what he could have become, you know, Bruno, and this isn't like to try to compare Bruno or Dominic, uh, I mean, Bruno and Flair, but Bruno would, you know, he didn't come back and, you know, just walk up to you and say, okay, Brian, tonight you did this right and this wrong. But if you went to, to Bruno and you asked him a question, he would give you a 10 minute dissertation on what you asked about, you know, so I, I, I had so many people in my career, or especially early career, you know, throughout my career, really, but especially early in my formative years, guys like Bruno and Dominic and Pez and Slater and Murdoch and Eddie Gilbert, who were very vocal in giving information and direction. And then to have my idol, the guy that I, you know, looked up to and idolized, that was on a pedestal to me, punk you out, that just didn't sit well with me. Now, how many times did you punch that piece of paper before you got it right? Weeks. My knuckles are still discolored. You know, they're, they're permanently discolored from having done that. You know, but that's just one day you get it. You know, it, it, much like this business, you know, Steve Austin and I both talked about it before I was on his podcast because uh, we hadn't spoken in so long. And uh, we ended up bullshitting for about two hours before we even recorded. And he said, hey, do you mind if I ask you this during the show? How long did it take you to start to feel comfortable in the ring? And, you know, it, it, it was much like that. You know, th this business is a very difficult industry to pick up. Uh, being a great athlete alone isn't <laughs> isn't enough. That's part of it. Then you have to learn all the parts of our business, you know, psychology, storytelling, spots and moves. You know, there's so many. Then, then, you know, if you're gifted enough and you get a character given to you, like I was with the franchise, how are you going to How are you going to flesh out this character? You know, so there's an there's a bunch of moving parts to this. You know, for me, it just it, it, it was just such a big letdown with Rick. You know, to to have idolized him for so long and looked up to him and respected him uh, with, with, with a great amount of respect to, you know, just be sort of sloughed off like, hey, you know, you're so unimportant, kid, that 
I'll just tell you whatever, and you should take it and be happy you got that. Shane Douglas ain't quite that kind of guy. All right, I'm going to use this time to take a quick break to remind you of our sponsor, the official attorney of Franchise with Shane Douglas, the one and only best lawyer in the world, Stephen P. New. Since 2001, drug companies dumped a billion opioid pills in West Virginia, causing over 3,000 overdose deaths and thousands of babies born addicted by no fault of their own. I'm attorney Stephen New. If you're the grandparent or guardian of a child born with neonatal abstinence syndrome, call me. I'll help you seek just compensation. Call the law offices of Stephen P. New at 1-844-BAD-PILLS before time runs out. Hey, this is Matt Mullins of Matt Mullins and the Bringdowns. We've got a new record coming out called Partly Pandemonium, Partly Love. We've released one single, and the second single will be released exclusively through Mr. Brian Reznor and the Franchised Podcast, one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. So check us out, facebook.com slash thebringdowns, thebringdowns.com. Check it out. Hey, man. Hello, Rich Quick here with another quick moment in Shane Douglas history. Now, have you ever heard that old saying, never meet your heroes? I mean, the idea of loving someone you have never met, it it sounds crazy, doesn't it? See, but we've all done it. Now imagine meeting that person, and that person turns out to be a complete and utter dick. I personally hope none of you experience that. It's it's heartbreaking, truly. But, you know, it, it's not always bad. See, Shane Douglas is a legit hero of mine. And he has always been polite and professional. And after all these years, we are still working together. See, imagine that. I mean, hell, I met Al Roker one time, and he was a lovely person. But I, I think we can all agree, Al Roker is no Ric Flair. See, now... This is the part that, that makes me uncomfortable. It, because personally, I love Ric Flair. I consider him a hero as well. But I've never met Ric Flair. And honestly, I don't want to. Why? Well, because I'm afraid he would be a dick. I, I just don't know what I'd do. See, then it hit me. It hit me. There's nothing we can do. We cannot control how other people treat us, but we can control how we treat others. Because believe it or not, and I can promise you one thing, you are a hero to someone, whether you know it or not. It can be a child, a friend, or someone you've never met, but somebody is looking up to you right now. So behave accordingly, okay? You are somebody's hero. Swap like it, damn it. And don't be a dick. Okay? <laughs> so, until next week, this has been Rich Quick with another quick moment in Shane Douglas history. Alright, so in ECW, you went off on Ric Flair every chance you got, yet Ric Flair wasn't in ECW. Was this your idea, or Paul's idea, or what? 
Well, it started off, uh, like I said, that first night, Paul gave me the mic, five-minute segment, I believe it was, and it said, say whatever you want. Well, the reason I started on Flair, Flair, of course, his most overtime was Charlotte, like like most of ours. But the, the next two on the rit- roster, as far as Flair being over, you know, Bruno was over every place. Wherever he went, he threw. Flair had places he would draw. Charlotte, of course, Chicago was huge in Chicago, and he was huge in Philadelphia. So this is around the time that ECW was you know, still in that phase of none of us were heels, none of us were babies. You know, Paul wanted us all to be tweeners and sort of let the fans gravitate. You know, the fans decide we want this one to be a heel, this one to be a baby face, and the way that they responded. We were still in that phase. So I went out thinking I'm going to get heat. I'm going to start working to get heat. You know, because Flair was so over in Philadelphia, my thinking was, if I go out and I bury Flair here, it's going to get me a ton of heat. And that was where the whole thing, that was the whole genesis of the thing. I was to go out and, you know, give him the open mic to say what I wanted. I was going to let the world know that I thought Ric Flair was a piece of shit. Thought that it would give me heat in response, and it didn't quite turn out that way. And it was pretty real. You did think Ric Flair was a piece of shit at this time. I did. You know, an incredible performer, but a piece of shit nonetheless. Uh, like, you know, you, you said the adage earlier, you know, don't ever meet your heroes because, you know, it, it, although it's not an absolute, I met Bruno San Martino and I, I was in awe of Bruno. Remained in awe until he died. I'm still in awe of Bruno. Well, I met Shane uh, Douglas per- one time and I'm I'm pretty in awe of that guy. I ended up starting a podcast <laughs> and everything else. So you, you can meet some of your heroes. Well, that, that Shane Douglas guy is a hell of a guy here. But, he is, uh, he is. You know, so, uh, you know, for me, it was just the way things went. You know, it, it, the one thing I never wanted to do as a heel, especially because for me in ECW, ECW was a learning curve for me. I had never been a heel. My initial thought on being a heel was it's just the opposite of being a babyface. Okay, now describe to me what that is and then go out and execute it. I was so used to having the match called. I was just responding to what, the person I was working with would call for me. Now, suddenly I, I was given the, the commission of calling the match and getting myself over and my opponent vastly, vastly different than just being a baby face. You know, so for me, there was a learning curve there. Fortunately, I had Terry Funk, you know, Terry was gracious with, with teaching, you know, with giving you pointers and answering your questions and that sort of thing. So you know, throughout my career, I had interactions with some pretty big names, had programs with some pretty big names, all of whom were pretty gracious with giving advice and direction, some more than others. You know, Dick Murdoch wasn't a very verbose guy when it came to that, but he, Dick taught a different way. Dick taught more in the ring. After the match, Dick was going to have a beer and didn't want to talk about wrestling. You know, but there was still a way to learn from that. The only way, you know, because I've thought about this long and hard over the years, why, you know, why did Flair do that? You know, because it wasn't just me. I was, you know, hearing the same thing from Pillman when Pillman, you know, he pulled Pillman in close to him. I heard the same stuff from Steve Austin later, was hearing the same stuff at the time from Zank. You know, so it wasn't just like, hey, Shane Douglas, and he, he wasn't giving advice to and everybody else he was. I honestly believe that in some crazy corner of Ric Flair's mind, he was worried about these kids coming up, knowing that these kids were going to be the stars of the future. 
one thing about Flair I will give him credit for, uh, I guess sort of backhanded credit, Ric Flair is a master politician. Uh, why he didn't run for governor those 10, 20 years ago when he said he was going to is beyond me because he is an absolute politician, and I mean that in the best and worst of definitions. He just, you know, can look at you while he's pissing down your leg and swear to you it's raining. That's Rick. You know, I think that, you know, as crazy as that sounds, you know, I, I, I said it several times in interviews, and I mean it from the bottom of my heart. No one, no one was ever going to take Ric Flair's spot. He's still idolized today by millions of fans around the world because he's Ric Flair, not Richard Flair, Ric Flair. You know, so for him to have a notion of concern that some kids coming up the, the roster were going to take his spot, or I, I don't know. I, I can't think of any other reason for it uh, other than that. And, it, you know, it just seems to be an oddity to me because, again, he's, he's Rick goddamn Flair. So, well, the first time that you had the mic wasn't the only time you talked about Ric Flair. You talked about Ric Flair a whole lot in ECW. Now, was this just to get you over on Flair's namesake, or was it to inspire Flair to come to ECW, or was it just to shit on the Nature Boy just to do it? Uh, my, from my position, it was to shit on the Nature Boy and let him know what I thought of him. You know, when Paul said, say whatever you want, that was all I needed. But then it became more than that. Like, first of all, I kept going to Paul because there was a long period where Paul kept wanting me to, to hammer Flair. I don't think Paul liked Flair either. You know, he'd say, don't, don't forget to, you know, to hammer Flair. Now, ironic in that is that Paul originally wanted me, after I started doing these promos, he wanted me to start doing Flair's chop and his woo. And I said, are you out of your fucking mind? I'm out here burying the guys. I'm going to go out and emulate them. Not a chance. And I shot that down in flames. Uh, but at one point, and I can tell you when it was, it was when Arn Anderson came the first time. You know, Paul kept threatening. You know, his dad was an attorney, a high-powered attorney in, uh, in New York. And, he, you know, WCW would do something. Paul would threaten them with lawsuits. Well, that's all it took in WCW. They didn't want any lawsuits. So they'd give you whatever they wanted. They'd bend over backwards to avoid a lawsuit. You know, over the years, that's how we were able to initially get Steve Austin. That was how we were able to get Brian Pillman, Sherry Martell, Cactus uh, Jack, Bobby Eaton, Cactus Jack. Arn Anderson came up, and he and Paul went into a room, and a half hour later, Paul called me into the room and said, and told me to sit down. He said to Arn, I forget who initiated it, but somehow the conversation was quickly brought up. If Flair came would I shoot on him? And, you know, it, it was fleshed out that this is when Flair was having his contract issues with uh, Bischoff. He wanted, I forget what the sum it was, it was a huge sum of money that ECW couldn't afford to pay for one shot at that point. We're talking and like so, $100,000 or so? It, 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 at least that, if not more. It, it, again, I don't remember, I, I'm sure I could, you know, make a few calls and find out what the number was. It was a lot of money way more than ECW could afford. And this was a possibility so, of Ric Flair coming to ECW to face you. Yes. And to show Arn that I was willing to do business, I suggested a three-match series. First match in Charlotte, where he would beat me. So I would do the job first. Second in Pittsburgh, where I would beat him. Both house shows. The third would be in Philadelphia and would be 
tendered to be ECW's first pay-per-view, where we'd go 55-plus minutes, and I would slide over on him. So he would save face, you know, ultimately, being an ECW show, the ECW talent's going to go over. But, you know, I thought we could give some pretty incredible classics if we did that. And by me laying down first, that's about as easy, the best way that I could think of to show that I would do business. Shortly after that, Paul said, or, uh, uh, Rick settled his contract dispute, and so it never happened. But it came close. It came very, very close when Arn Anderson was there. Arn was there as, a, as an envoy uh, to sort of feel out was it possible. All right, so in 2012, Ric Flair went on record stating that he wouldn't have wrestled you in ECW for a million dollars because, in his own words, who is Shane Douglas? He's a clerk at Kmart now. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, again, it just shows you his level of class, right? Every time I look at Rick, I see – remember the old uh, Charlie the Tuna, tuna, uh, tuna Fish commercials? You know, uh, sorry, Charlie, we need, uh, we need tuna that tastes good, not with good taste. You know, you can put Rick – uh, in a million-dollar suit, give him a million-dollar Rolex, and all you got is a piece of shit with a million-dollar suit and a Rolex. You know, no class. No class at all. You know, you might be the only person that says Ric Flair has no class, because to a lot of people, I'm sure Ric Flair is the epitome of class. Well, if you if you think that blue suede shoes in 2019 are classy, then maybe so. Uh, <laughs> I happen to have different tastes. I found it interesting that he said that after the two of you had your uh, your only match in history in WCW, the match where Flair wore street clothes for some reason. I always thought that that was almost like a message that he didn't take the matchup seriously. Well, again, that, remember what I said about Master Politician? When Bischoff, who paid me quite handsomely uh, to come there, his exact words to me were, I want to be the one that brings this to you to television. I had taken my now ex-wife, on a two- or three-week cruise because I know I was going to be pretty busy for the next three years. And on the way back into Miami, that following Monday, I think we got in on Saturday or Sunday, whatever it was, I rented a car and we drove up Florida, you know, stopping here and there and everywhere. In Jacksonville, my ex-wife didn't, still doesn't like professional wrestling, never did, thank God. So when I asked her to you know, if she wanted to go to the Jacksonville, which is where Nitro was that night, if she wanted to go, excuse me, she said, uh, she said, no, you just go and take care of business. So I thought it would be a good political move on my part to show that on my dime, I was, you know, I stuck around Florida and I popped in to say hello to everybody. But I, most importantly, I wanted to talk to Flair face to face. I wanted to ask him face to face if he was going to uphold his end of that angle. Because I knew what we could create, and at this time, WCW was now getting its ass kicked by WWF. And I knew that, you know, the wrestling fans knew that the two of us was a genuine dislike, that they would tune in to watch it. And if we worked our magic, I, I still fervently believe that we could have pulled the, those ratings back in our favor. You know, us and a pretty damn good supporting cast. So when I walked in, when you walk into the Jacksonville building, in the back, there's a big garage door that's always closed. And then you walk in with your bag, and there's a little tiny hallway where you walk past guards that, like, like in bank teller windows. And you have to sort of turn sideways with your bag to, to, to walk in. It's a very thin hallway. So I had just walked into the backstage area, 
And I remember Mikey and uh, Peaches, Sandman, you know, a lot of the ECW talent were coming up to San Lo. And I've, the one thing I've always said about, there, there's three guys in my head since I've been in the business that have the it factor, you know, that you can't learn, you can't teach it to anybody to either have it or you don't. Flair, Hogan, and Dusty, all three had an aura about them that you could be in the back of a room crowded with a thousand people and when they walk in the front, you feel them. You know, somebody important just walked in. So I was sitting there saying hello to everybody and talking and there's, you know, the backstage there's people walking everywhere and I felt Flair behind me. No, I didn't. Nobody, yep, nobody said anything. Nobody pointed it out. Nobody said, hey, Rick, whatever. I felt him behind me. And before I turned around, I went, Rick. And as I turned, sure enough, he was right behind me. I put my hand out. The, the whole backstage area went dead quiet. Everybody stopped dead in their tracks. And Rick, in typical political style, perused the backstage area and realized that all the eyeballs were on us. And he put his hand out and shook my hand. And he said, how are you, sir? And I said, I'm doing great, Rick. I said, uh, hey, why don't I give you a few minutes to settle in? I think you and I should talk, don't you? And he again scanned the backstage area. He goes, yeah, yeah, give me like 15 minutes. So, of course, he had his own private dressing room. I went down to catering and intentionally took about 45 minutes. I wasn't going to be knocking on his door in 15 minutes, specifically because he said give him 15 minutes. I get my coffee and I go back up to his room. And I knock on the door and he says, come on in. I open the door. He was in a gray T-shirt, his tights, and he had one boot laced, and he was lacing the other boot. He jumped up, holding the laces, and he came over, and he said, uh, Shane, I just want to start, and he puts his hand out. He said, I just want to start by saying I'm sorry. And I chuckled at him. Not out of disrespect, I chuckled because it was funny. And I said, Rick, I can't accept that because I know it's not legit. I said, but I'm not going to apologize to you either because what I said I meant. And then I went into my spiel about the ratings, about what this angle could do for WCW, and I said, and after I said all that, I, I, I looked him in the eye and I said, so I'm going to ask you man to man. I stepped in close to him. I said, I'm going to ask you man to man, face to face. Are you professional enough to uphold your end of this angle? And he sat and he thought about it, much like the pregnant pause he had given me years before. And he said, yes, sir. Yes, I am. Okay, great. I'm going to hold you to that. And we shook hands and I walked out. I later found out the night of the match in Kansas City that... Starting that night in Jacksonville, Rick went into political mode, started telling the office why this match shouldn't happen. And I would, if I had to lay my life on a bet, I'd be willing to bet that that was the reason we had David and Sting, Vince Russo, and, and the Marx Brothers involved in that match that night. Well, Sting wasn't involved, just David Flair as Sting. Yes. Now this is uh, now now the night that you're talking about. You had the conversation with Ric Flair. That is the night of the Nitro where you attacked him. The night that uh, Bischoff and Russo were were teamed up. No, 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 no. no that was, this was Jacksonville. I wasn't on. My contract didn't start for another several weeks. I think um, I can't remember what building that was because, quite frankly, it wasn't high on my list of priorities in my career. But uh, there was a Nitro where I came out with my chain that the fans knew. And what was interesting about that night was half the crowd was going insane that Shane Douglas, the franchise, was now here and attacked Rick. The other half didn't know who I was. And so I, I went back and I told uh, Bischoff and Russo that we had a little bit of work to do. You know, we, we have to educate these fans. 
because a lot of them don't know, yet know who I am. ECW wasn't still that widely known of a product. And so there were a lot of people in that building that had no idea of the things that I said about Flair. They had no idea about the heat between us. And they had no idea when this guy just hit Ric Flair in the back of the head with the chain. You know, so that was the, that was the first night. See, I can't believe that some that that fans wouldn't know who you are. I I remember when you attacked Ric Flair. I was like, "This is it! Finally, finally, we're gonna get to see this." I was, I mean, I was extremely excited about it. When you find out that you're finally getting this match, are you excited? Uh, not really, because at that point, even though I haven't been told, Russo would tell me the night of the match in Kansas City, that, you know, what Rick was pulling behind the you know behind the scenes. But if you go back and you look at the build-up to that match, there was very, very little in the way of build-up. You know, there was very little interaction between me or Flair. So I knew what Flair was doing. I'd seen him do it for years before. You know, Rick was only concerned about Rick. You know, truth be known, that's what Rick is concerned about today. You know, that it's a shame to say it, but, you know, WCW was paying him a shitload of money. They were paying me a pretty good chunk of money. And instead of being concerned of giving the company the promotion that was paying the two of us return on their dollar, Ric Flair decided to become a politician and, you know, screw me. But really, ultimately, he screwed WCW and the WCW fans. When you come to like you've already talked to Ric Flair beforehand. Now, the night that you're supposed to attack him, do you guys have any interaction there? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the the first night he knew, you know, all of that was timed. So he was aware of what was going to happen, you know, but if if you go back and you look at how Rick sold it, you know, he he took that first bump and then, you know, there was none of the flair magic put to it. Again, for any seasoned guy that's, you know, been watching it long enough or has been doing it long enough, you can go back and watch that night and you can see that flair is not really being flair. He's like going through the motions. And yeah, I, always, uh, I always felt like that. I was more, for me, I was more concerned with the reaction. You know, because I'm looking at the crowd and I see half of them losing their fucking mind. And the other half, like, looking like, who is that? Uh, it was really, you know, I say half and half. I don't know. It was 60, 40, 70, 30, 50, 50. But there was definitely a contingent in the audience that had no idea who I was. And so I knew we had to educate the audience. I wasn't worried about Flair. I didn't at that point especially after my discussion with him in Jacksonville, I took the, I took the man at his word that he was going to uphold his end of that bargain. So I was more fascinated by the reaction of the crowd that night. Now, after you spoke to him in Jacksonville, like before that, had you spoken to him since you started bad-mouthing him in 1993? No. No, there was uh, one time in ECW, I think it was the first time he responded. You know, I think he went with, you know... The, 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 the little dirty secret that was there is that ECW was on the grow. People were talking about ECW. Fans were exchanging tapes nationwide to see ECW because we weren't on locally for them. And, you know, so there was this groundswell that we now see today with the ECW chance. That began there. I walked into the building one day and Bob Ryder, who was doing live feed by typing, you know, he would watch the matches and feed out on the early internet. Uh, you know, you know, Shane Douglas just arm dragged Taz or whatever. Uh, he would literally type out the matches as they were happening. Well, I walked into the building that day and Bob said, Hey, did you hear what Flair said about you? 
And this is months into me talking about him. And I said, I don't give a shit what he said about me. And blew it off. And several times throughout the day, Bob Ryder kept coming up to me and saying, hey, don't you want to hear what Flair said about you? And I, said, I kept telling him, not interested. Don't give a shit. You know, he's yesterday's news to me. You know, Bob knew me well enough to know that once I went out of the franchise and came back from the ring, that I would be in franchise mode. As I was walking into the dressing room, he handed out, he handed, like, put two pieces of paper in front of me. He held his hand out. And so I grabbed him and kept walking. It was right back by the curtain. And I kept walking into the dressing room. And I went into the dressing room and I sat down and read it. And it was some, you know, what I consider to be a lame attempt at a, at a, at a shot by flair sort of like what you'd expect an old guy to say to a younger guy type of thing and and because i was in franchise mode, i went back to bob and i said you ready here's my response it, it said something about steroids in there you know you know take steroids and i said uh i can't remember verbatim but it was something along the lines of the the the, the, the money spot the money line was tell Rick to take the needle out of my ass and shove it in his and maybe those tits won't keep flopping around like they've been for the last several years. Well, he didn't fire back anymore publicly at that point. He would send messages through wrestlers, you know. It was something about, you know, maybe somebody should have a talk with his wife about it, you know, about a few of his girlfriends on the road and their names. Something like that. I, I can't remember, but it was pretty clear shot across his bow that, like, dude, if you want to go any further with this, we can make life miserable for you. Um... You know, easy enough to do with a guy that is a very, very much a human being. You know, Flair likes to play like he's some kind of god on a pedestal, and in reality, Flair has the same foibles as every other human being times a thousand. You know, pretty easy mark to to be able to fire back off on me as as far as my life on the road. I, I, unfortunately, now that I'm divorced, I'm sorry to say I was straight and narrow. You know, I didn't see around on the road. I didn't fuck around on the road. And so, you know, there was no way he could he could receipt me because there was nothing I was doing on the road. And I think at that point, he wisely dropped it. He made no more public comments after that for quite a long time. So in the match, was he easy to work with? Uh, yeah, no. He wasn't hard. It wasn't like he was going out there and, you know, like uh, like Shawn Michaels or Scott Hall were like trying to like call spots off my spots, but he was laying his shit in, and I liked it that way. You know, I thought you know, the more you hit me like that, the more I come back with my own stuff because if if that's where we're going, you know, there's no complaint. You can't say, "Hey, you tatered me." But Rick was laying his stuff in, and I wanted that from him. I went to the ring with the intention of making that match what I thought it could be. Rick went with other ideas. Did you know he was going to come out in street clothes for this match at Slambury? No, no. If I'd have known that, I'd have smacked him in his face in the dressing room. <laughs> All right, there's a part in this match where Flair has you in the corner giving you some famous Flair chops. Every chop yeah. you return with a solid punch, but Flair no-sells yeah. every punch and then follows up with a punch of his own that takes you off your feet. I'd never really yeah. seen Flair no-sell punches you think he did this to make you look weak, or was this just business as usual dealing with a face flare? No, that that was uh, that was Rick being Rick, the politician. My receipt in that match comes in the figure four. I locked it in tight, and he's given me the office about a thousand times because it was so snug, you know. So we were both sending messages, 
And, and really, that's what I wanted from Rick. You know, I, I wanted him to come out there and give his best. If he wanted to turn it into a shoot, I was more than prepared for that. And, and, and to be honest with you, I think that's partly what I expected. You know, it was clear, like when he's throwing his punches and stuff, his chops he was laying in, but his punches were light as a feather. He was being very, very careful to not send the message that he's trying to turn this into a shoot. All right, you get the win in this only match the two of you ever had with interference from David Flair dressed like Sting. There was supposed to be another match, right? There was supposed to be a series of matches, yes. Why did this feud not truly ever take off? Like, do you think that was because of Flair's politicking or or what what exactly made it so that this never happened again? Yes, I'm sure Rick went, you know, Rick, one thing about those, and not just Rick, I mean, most of the guys from that generation, they know how to read the lay of the land. As soon as you get somebody in the office, the boss, that you can take advantage of, those guys took advantage of over and over again which is, I think, a part of the reason the business ended up where it did. It's why Vince was able to commandeer the industry, because there were so many guys like that that were playing politician and taking advantage of guys like uh, Bill Bush, because those guys were enamored. Holy shit, it's Ric Flair, it's Dusty Rhodes. It's who, and I'm not suggesting Dusty, I'm just saying those names off the top of my head. Though, you know, a guy like him got eaten alive, as did Jim Hurd. Because these guys, you know, they're from outside our industry coming into professional wrestling and they're in a room with Ric Flair. They're in a room with Dusty Rhodes. They're in a room with Arn Anderson. They're in a room with whoever, Jim Cornette, whoever, fill in the blame, J.J. Dillon. And all of those guys who had worked with, you know, and learned from Dusty and worked uh, under uh, Jim Crockett and many of them worked with Bill Watts. All those guys knew every single game in the book, and they took advantage of that with wide latitude. Flair was no exception in that case. Flair was the master of it. Look at this from WCW's position for a second. I think at that time, Flair was making seven fifty a year, which was a huge chunk of money at that time. So he's making 750000 a year. You've brought me in and given me a seven-figure contract over three years. So in two wrestlers... You've got close to $5 million wrapped up in, in salary. I would think that WCW would have wanted a return on that investment. In other words, if I'm paying Brian Reznor $1,000 a week to run my business, don't bring me $999 in business. I want $5,000, $10,000, $20,000 for the 1000 I'm paying you. I want some exponent of that. That's exactly and, how my employer thinks. <laughs> And, and and most employers think that way because a business is a business. It, it lives or dies on a profit. Right. Um, I don't think it's coincidence that just a few years later, WCW rolls up and concedes the war to Vince McMahon and sells for pennies on the dollar. They want it out. They want it done with working with jackass wrestlers like this. So did you guys speak after this match? No. So you know, no no talking about that match whatsoever with Ric Flair? No. I believe we were going to Canada the next day. He, as always, had his own dressing room, and he never came out and thanked me for the match. He never came out and spoke about the match, and I sure as hell was going to go knock on his door. It wasn't my position to do that. Have you guys spoke at all since WCW closed? Yes. The first time we spoke after that was – in Ross Draver, Pennsylvania, the first time that I worked with uh, Moose, 
Chris Hughes. Oh. And he was he was all nervous because Flair was going to be there. And he thought there might be a problem or whatever. I said, trust me. I said, if, I, if, if I've got this right, Rick will be a total pussycat. And this was just a few weeks after his son had died. So when he came walking in with Mark Madden, I stood up from behind my table and walked right over to him. And I put my hand out and I said, Rick, I know we've had our differences, but my heart aches for you, brother. I am so sorry about Reed. And he thanked me like he was thanking me for a cup of coffee. And it, it just really stuck strange to me. You know, if something happened to one of my kids, brother, I'm taking a bridge. You know, it just seemed very odd to me. Uh, Big Time Wrestling out of Boston was having a show there. <clears throat> and that was the first time we spoke. It was very brief. You know, since then, we've seen each other at conventions or whatever. And, and it's, put it this way, I'm as funny to him as he is to me. You said in last week's episode that you spoke to David Flair about his father, and he said things that would crush you if your son said yep. that about you. Um, but you never really yeah, well, went into what he said. What did David have to say about Ric Flair? He, uh, I, you know, David's a nice, really nice kid. And I don't mean kid condescendingly. I mean, because he's younger than me. The first, you know, early on in, when we're there and he's there, he was always polite and respectful. And I went up to him and I said, you know, look, I felt like I owed him some kind of an explanation. You know, why did I say these things about his dad? Because like I said last week, if anybody had said, and my dad was far from perfect. I loved him dearly, but he was far from perfect. My dad was a man. But don't you dare say something bad about my dad. So I, that, that was my feeling, you know, that out of respect for David, he seems like a nice kid. I'm going to go up and explain to him. And when I started, you know, I started off with, a, you know, I, I've said, you know, been a lot of things said over the years about your dad, and I think I feel like I owe you an explanation. He stopped me, and he said, Shane, I know my dad better than anybody. You don't need to explain anything to me. And I remember thinking to myself, and that was that was all that was said. And we never brought it up again. David always treated me with respect and friendly. And I that always resonated in my head. You know, like I said, if I, if I would hear one of my sons saying a tenth of the stuff about me that I've said about Flair, I'd be crushed. Or if I heard them say, hey, you don't need to know me. If you went up to them and said, hey, let me tell you about Shane Douglas. If they said, hey, you don't need to explain to me, I, I know my dad better than anybody, that would that would be enough for me to just stop breathing. But, you know, I think, you know, this is just my editorial. I always took that as being, look, I've grown up and seen all the times he's cheated on my mother, the things that he's done, the, the, the time that he didn't give us as kids. You'd have to ask David what he meant by that. That's the way I always took it. Do you think David's jealous of Charlotte? I'm sure he loves his sister. You know, David, I think David's well aware that he didn't have his dad's gift. Charlotte seems to. And, you know, I, I doubt that he's jealous. I don't think, I haven't spoken to David in years, but the things that I've seen him, you know, seen attributed to him, whether he said them or I don't know, but, you know, you'll see reports that, hey, David Flair said this or that. He seems to be very happy and seems to have found his path in life. What's and, he doing? Uh, I, oh, God. He, he just recently married, I think, or the story that I saw that he was married uh, to a pretty girl. And the, it's a picture of the two of them together, big smile on his face. Uh, his hair is back dark. 
he looks he looks happy, and I'm happy for him. If he is happy, I'm happy for him. Like I said, he's a damn good guy. So did Arn Anderson ever treat you differently because of your heat with Ric Flair? No. Uh, in fact, it's funny you ask that because there was a time, you know, I always assumed that, you know, that Arn, like the Four Horsemen, was the enforcer. You know, he's the tough guy of the group, and we were on a flight, a red-eye flight, back from San Diego to Pittsburgh. He connected on to Charlotte. We were both in first class. We were having drinks, and you know, I started explaining to him. And he said pretty much the same thing in different words that David said. He said, I've known Nate longer than anybody in the business. You don't need to explain anything to me. And this was sort of like a, you know, like a uh, running tagline, you know, with people that I would talk to about Rick, Tully Blanchard, different people would say that exact same thing. Hey, you don't need to explain anything to me. I, I, I know the guy. Did anyone ever have issues with you because of Ric Flair? Like, did anyone try to stand up for Flair, like stand up to you? Not one. Not a one. So I, I think I think I was the one that had the, the big enough mouth to say what everybody else was thinking. Look, I know Sting has a lot of respect for him because he made Sting, right? You know, that's the Flair that I was expecting to work with. The guy that worked with Sting and took Sting from being this guy to being one of the guys. That was the flair I expected to work with and didn't get. And I think it just, I think it really echoes the level of professionalism that Rick Flair gives to the business. You know, that, you know, some, in his mind, I, I guess, and again, this is me editorializing, in his mind, you know, these people tonight in Kansas City, fuck them because I don't like that guy. You know, not ballsy enough to go out and turn it into a shoot for Kansas City, but ballsy enough to go out there and derail the match, not give the fans their money's worth, not give WCW their money's worth, really do himself a disservice. You know, who who looks like the, 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 the professional between the two of us in the ring? The franchise is there in his gear, ready to go. Ric Flair comes out in street clothes like this is some kind of a joke or something. You know, it, 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 I think it just really says a lot if you know Rick and you know the industry and you can read between the lines. So after all this time, do you still hold a grudge or is the hatchet somewhat buried? Like I said, I, like I told you before, I, I don't think of Ric Flair. You know, he, he, the only the last time I thought of him with any kind of in-depth uh, inspection was uh, whenever he had the health scare last year. And when I went on Twitter and I wrote what I wrote, I didn't do that for brownie points. I didn't do it for any other reason. And a genuine concern for another human being. I've seen enough guys in my business die. I don't care to see any more die. You know, so, you know, what I said wasn't an attempt to get back on Rick's good side because, quite frankly, I give a rat's ass. I still stand behind the things that I said about him. I cared about him as a human being. It's sort of sad that, you know, Rick's obviously still, you know, still a little sore. Um, and, you know, like I'll, I'll try to take his side for a second. So Rick was used to always having the adulation of the fans, which he well-deserved. He always had the adulation of the guys in the dressing room, which he well-deserved. And then suddenly here's a kid coming with a very legitimate purpose and is now worked his way up that ladder. Nobody gave it to me because my dad was in the business or, 
my brother or my uncle. Um, I did it the old fashioned way, the way you're supposed to do it. I had a pretty big chip on my shoulder because like I said, where I come from, that's called punking somebody out. And I'm certainly not afraid of Ric Flair. So if you want to punk me out, be man enough to come up and say it to my face or do it overtly to me instead of playing this game of politics and wrestling and everything else. And so from his point of view, I could see why he, he, you know, he'd be pissed. Holy shit. Who's this punk talking about me? Well, if he opened his ears and paid attention and thought back, it shows you like how, where he saw us in the pantheon in his head, he probably didn't remember the things that he had said or did, you know, which I think is, I try to remember as much of the business as I can. And some of it leaves your, your consciousness. But as you can see, like with this podcast or any interview that I do, when somebody asks me a question, I might have to scrape off a few dust uh, bunnies back in the back of the brain, but the stories are all there. You know, to me, my, my career has been a sense of wonderment. I've loved professional wrestling and loved that I had the opportunity to work with and learn from the guys that I did with the promoters that I did as much as I hated Bill Watts yelling. How many times you heard me say, I learned this from Bill Watts or Bill Watts used to say, you know, so I've seen my career, you know, it's been in a sense of awe that this snot nosed kid from New Brighton, Pennsylvania wanted to be a professional wrestler, had the balls to give it a try and did okay at it. I I don't want anybody to think that I'm bitter to the business. I'm not, I'm, I'm astounded at, at the business. What I'm, you know, what I'm angry about is when I see something like Vince McMahon suggest Ivan Koloff that he's begging for welfare because the guy wants to walk. When he forgets about a guy named Kamala that drew him a, a few bucks back in the day, when he's in desperate need, somehow disconnects himself from it. That's the stuff that I, I ponder today. That's the stuff that I think about today. Ric Flair doesn't come into my consciousness. And when he does, it's Ric Flair the performer, not Ric Flair the man. All right, I guess my final question here is, do you think that Ric Flair still holds a grudge against you? Oh, I'm, I'm, I think your question's answered that earlier, yeah. Ric Flair, for better or for worse, is going to, I think he said it best himself, right? Uh, I'm not going to change a thing. I'm going to do, I'm going to keep being me and, and doing the things I enjoy till I go. You know, to me, it seems, you know, a little bit selfish. You know, that, you know your kids, grandkids, I'm guessing, coming on the way at some point. But that's Ric Flair. The world's here for him. Well, he's definitely enjoying the things that he enjoys till he goes, man. I, I don't know if you've seen him in the the little spots that he's had in wrestling in the last few years. He's been pretty drunk. I, well, it doesn't surprise me. You know, that that, that Dan Ross trade when I saw him two weeks after Reed passed away, he went to the ring, very top of the show, did a two- or three-minute promo, and then left. And the reason I know that is because my brother-in-law took him, all right, my, my nephew-in-law took him to the Pittsburgh airport. And Ross driving to Pittsburgh airport is about, I don't know, 40 minute drive. And he was gone for several hours. I mean, like three, four hours. I mean, he came back and said, where the hell did you go? He said, oh, he said, we, we got no more than a mile down the road. And Rick made me pull into a bar. Now this is before the health scare, right? So, Look, you know, with my medical school background that Rick claims I don't have, the one thing I can tell you is when you've had that close of a scare to death and you've been that close, you change your life. You know, you you change the things you need to or 
he just pushed you out and say, I ain't man enough to do it. So I'm just going to keep on drinking and go. And it's easy to sit there and say, put it like, like a nice, neat bow on it. Hey, you know, I'm just going to keep being me and enjoying the things I enjoy. You know why? Because it takes a real man and it takes real work to make a life change like that. But again, you know, like I don't know if Charlotte or David or have kids. If they don't, I'm sure they will at some point. And I would think that they'd like to get to know their grandfather. I'm sure that Charlotte and David would love to have their dad around for as long as they can. And so to me, it's a cop-out, you know, to sit there and say, well, gee, that's going to take a lot of work to do that. So instead, I'll just keep on drinking and having fun and woo, go till I go. Cop-out. But pretty much what you'd expect from a guy that's, in my book, not much of a man. Well, I was pretty excited to do this episode. I've been a Ric Flair fan for a long time. And of course, you know, Ric Flair didn't, he didn't lose my respect because I'm just a fan and I was just watching. And of course, watching, then you think Ric Flair is somewhat of a wrestling god. And, uh, you know, as a fan, I guess I still want to keep that wonderment alive. But um, this has been a great episode. I've learned a lot and I've, I finally found out, you know, what, what makes this whole hatred tick. And I guess it's not hatred anymore as much as it is just uh, just past. Well, I, I, to me, I'd say the word that more comes to mind is disappointment. You know, look, I'm sure people that meet me think, you know, expect something else and, and not quite that. Um, but I can say honestly, I've never, you know, punked the kid out. Um, I've never lied. To, you know, I've, we all tell white lies, right? But, I mean, I've never never told a kid I'll watch a match, don't, and then blow smoke up his ass. I'm certainly seasoned enough to do it. I know how to do it. But if I did it, that would make me exactly what I've talked about with Rick for all these years. So I was disappointed. You know, that, that this guy, you know, a wrestling god, you put it best, he's a wrestling god. He'll be remembered 100 years from now. After we're all dead and dust, people will remember Ric Flair. Just a shame that there's so little of a real man there. You know, I, I, my thinking on it is, you know, I've, obviously I've analyzed Rick, right? You know, you, you try to size the guy up every time you see him. He seems to me who's forgotten who Richard Flair is, and he's bought into, I'm, woo, Space Mountain, I'm Rick Flair. And I can tell you with clear certainty, I know who Troy Martin is, and I know who Shane Douglas is, and I know the difference between the two, and, and I find that sad for Richard Flair's part. You know, that he's got a beautiful daughter, he's got a beautiful son, he's going to have beautiful grandkids if he doesn't already. Sad that he would just rather drink himself into a hole than the man up. Well, I definitely would like to see him quit drinking, because I'd like to, to think that the nature boy will live forever. And, of course, he will live forever in, you know, in memories, and, and all kinds of people will We'll think of him way, 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 way after he's gone. But right now, I, I mean, we, we do still have him, and, and I think that's great. I would like to, to continue to have him, so I hope that he gets his stuff in order. You and me both. All right. Well, Shane, I've got to say I'm really proud of you because we went an entire episode, and you only mentioned Vince McMahon three times. That's a record. <laughs> Well, I had somebody else to shoot on, so. <laughs> right. You definitely had trust somebody me, else to shoot me, on. Yeah, trust me, in future episodes, we'll have plenty to say about, about that piece of shit. So who's a bigger piece of shit, Vince McMahon or Rick? Oh, come on. Definitely Rick Vince. Flair is right. much, much, yeah, as much of a piece of garbage I think Rick has been, he's a, an angel compared to Vince McMahon. <laughs> I had to go there. I don't know why, but I had to go there. So let's talk about next week. Next week on Franchise with Shane Douglas, 
I'm excited about this because my knowledge of this product is very low. So I'm actually going to learn things and I love to learn things. I mean, I learn things every week, but most of the time I come in knowing what happened and I can just just go off of what I know. This week, I'm going to have to do a lot of research, and I think it's going to be awesome to talk for the first time about UWF. Wow. Yeah, that'll be a fun one because you know that was my first territory. Uh, you know, I, I had been in wrestling. I, I met Dominic in 1978. We had the backyard show. I started training with Dominic in 1982 when I went to college. Was working, you know, three, four times a month during college, making a few extra spending bucks and, you know, learning a little bit. But when I graduated and then 86, you know, my school loans, I had, a, I think it was $77,000 in school loans, which to me at that time was like $77 million. I couldn't even fathom that much money. And I had that in school loans and they were coming due. You know, I'd always thought that I would graduate from college and go to either Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, the state capital, or Washington, D.C. and start my career in politics, public policy. And we were in the middle of a recession as I graduated. No jobs available, nobody was hiring. And my school loans were fast. The grace period was fast running out. Dominic had had a series of shows in the Pittsburgh area at the time. They were on channel 22 out of Pittsburgh on Thursday nights at seven o'clock. UWF. And it really was, and I don't mean to liken it to ECW, but it really was the ECW of its day. It was ECW before ECW. I don't mean that it was as, you know, pushed the envelope as much as ECW did, but the wrestling at that time, if you looked at, you know, as WWF was the one cartoon characters of, you know, Duke the Dumpster Drossy and, you know, the, the Goon and stuff like that, uh, you know, uh, the UWF was still having wrestlers. Uh, there were characters, but, but it was wrestling. Heat. The heels had heat. Excuse me, Bill White was a firm believer in heels with heat. And so, you know, to me, I instantly gravitated to it. As soon as it came on, you know, it was like one of those things that, you know, every Thursday night at 5.45, you're busting your ass to get home because you wanted to catch the show. So Dominic had a series of shows up here, calling them UWF shows. In reality, half the card was UWF. Uh, on that loop was, think here, Eddie Gilbert. Missy Hyatt, Terry Taylor was on it, Buddy Roberts, the Missing Link, Bill Irwin, and also uh, known as the Goon. Right. Um, and so I'm missing a couple names. Anyway, they came up and and. I think for six or seven days in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, the shows all except one did very well. Uh, were you know packed. The first one was in Hundred West Virginia. And the whole town literally was at the at the show, and that was where Mick and I. We were always the curtain jerk. Mick and I uh, met. We wrestled in Clarksburg, West Virginia, came back at the Nathan Goth Arena and came back and Terry Taylor and Eddie Gilbert pulled the two of us out in back of the Nathan Goth uh, Arena and asked us if we'd ever thought of going on the road. And in reality, we had because neither of us thought we were that good. You know, we thought hey, we're OK for local stuff, but those guys on TV are incredible. And that's where it started. You know, I, when I graduated college and, you know, shortly after that, you know, a few months later and uh, school loans are coming due and I get the phone call from Eddie Gilbert if I wanted to come down i can't here i am all these i cannot wait to get into that and and dissect the uwf your time there the people that were there the things that happened and uh, and all the stories we're going to get to all of those next week right here on franchise with shane douglas don't forget to follow us on facebook at facebook.com forward slash franchise with shane douglas also follow us on twitter and you can follow us on instagram and don't forget to join the franchisee group on facebook 
And I've had a great time today, Mr. Franchise. Well, uh, how about you just go ahead and take us out of here? Hey, you've always wanted to know why the franchise doesn't like Ric Flair. Well, now you know, and the only way to learn it is right here on Franchise. Tune in every week to the only podcast where the franchise tells you his deepest secrets and the people he likes or dislikes. Tune in next week. <laughs> or get your ass franchised. <laughs> And now, coming to the ring, weighing in at 246 pounds, standing six foot one inches tall, and hailing from Charlotte, North Carolina. The one-time Intercontinental Champion, six-time United States Champion, six-time World Tag Team Champion, six-time PWI Wrestler of the Year, and 16-time Champion of the World, The Nature Boy. Talk about my dreams. 